Hey friend, Graham Baldwin here with The Speaker Lab. Hey, wouldn't it be nice if someone gave you the exact process to find and book more speaking gigs in 2024? That'd be nice, right? Well, I'll tell you what, we're just gonna do that for you. We've created a new 18-page guide based on Dan Irvin's process that helped him actually book over $100,000 in speaking gigs in the past year. Now, Dan is one of our uh, team members here. He's this, a very successful speaker and also one of our coaches. And so you're gonna learn how to get started prospecting, master discovery calls, proposal emails, and so much more. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash steps. Again, that's plural, thespeakerlab.com slash steps. We're going to send you that PDF guide right to your inbox. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash steps. That's it. That's all you got to do. Go there. Hey, thanks for listening. We appreciate it. You're awesome. Hey, what's up, friends? Grant Bolden here. So glad to have you here with us today for episode 403 of the Speaker Lab podcast. Now, it's hard to believe it, but we are actually finishing up our 40 speaking lessons from 400 episodes series, and I'm going to be sharing the final 10 lessons with you in today's show. Now, throughout the series, we've been looking back at some of the greatest lessons that have been shared in an effort to help you look forward and build an even stronger future for your speaking business. Now, over the years, we've had the privilege of welcoming guests from various corners of the industry who are willing to share their experiences, expertise and the lessons that they have learned. And so today, in these final 10 lessons, we're going to provide an insider look into the depths of growing as a speaker and entrepreneur, no matter what the industry might throw at you. Now, before we get to it, remember that during this series, we want to give you a chance to get a free copy of my book, The Successful Speaker. It is a great resource that's going to walk you through the exact steps that you need to take to have a successful speaking career. We've really made it simple. All you got to do is go to thespeakerlab.com slash free book. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com lab.com slash free book. Enter your info. We're going to randomly pick 40 of you and mail you a free copy of the book. All right. I know you're going to love this episode, these final 10 lessons. So here's episode 403 of the Speaker Lab podcast. Enjoy. As speakers, it's always a privilege and big help to learn from those who have gone before us in the industry. But in those early days of building a business, it's possible to feel like you, you don't have much to offer, but that is simply not true. Selena Sue takes a closer look at why it's important to lead with appreciation and interest to build relationships here in episode 178. So I'm curious what that looked like because it sounds like you were in a spot where a lot of speakers often find themselves, speakers and entrepreneurs in general, of we look up to different other speakers or entrepreneurs or just people we admire or respect that are a couple steps ahead of us and further down the road that we'd love to connect with, that we just, we'd love to have a friendship with or, or love to help or support. But oftentimes we feel like, what do we bring to the table? What can we offer? So what did you do early on to build some of those relationships and connections with some of those influencers? Yeah, I'd love to share a specific example. So when I was in business school, I was walking home one day from my summer internship and I saw my favorite number one influencer in the street. His name's Ramit Sethi. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times when we see, you know, the people that we admire, we think, oh my gosh, like, you know, either we're thinking, should I go up and talk to them or should I run in the other direction? Because I'm so terrified. And I went up and approached him and we started a conversation. And it was funny because he was actually letting his parents into a car. They had just gone on a cruise together. And so we started talking. He mentioned his sisters. I was like, oh yeah, I remember you've got two sisters. And you know, chapter seven on your book about savings, you talked about how they both had to save up for like, you know, their Indian weddings. And he was just so shocked that I remembered those details. And we started talking about his programs, which I had purchased. And then he ended up inviting me to one of his local New York meetups. And I went to this meetup and I remember meeting one of his friends there, Derek Halpern. And he saw me talking to Derek and laughing. And he was like, oh, you know, 
do you know Derek? And I was like, no, I just met him five minutes ago. And really the secret to getting people interested in you is to show that you're interested in them first. And so when I approach for me on the street, you know, I was coming from a place of passion and appreciation for his work. I had purchased his program um, with Derek. I had, I was familiar with his work. And so I think that, you know, a lot of times when we're thinking about how do we connect with the people we admire, we think that we need to have something really big to give them. Um, And we think, okay, well, they're more successful. They have more money. What could we do? But really, you know, leading with appreciation and gratitude and interest in someone's work is the starting point to developing a relationship. And then one of the next things that happened is Ramit reached out to me while I was in business school and told me, you know, I'm updating my website. I've got these mock-ups and I would, you know, love a couple minutes of your feedback if you have time. And I remember thinking, you know, this is the most important thing. And I left my entrepreneurship class. I went to the library and I organized this focus group and I spent four hours getting feedback on the images, the copy, the layout. And I wrote a couple pages of feedback and sent that over to him. And so even though he wasn't a client of mine, he got a sense for the quality of my work. And I would consistently, you know, find ways to help him, whether it was edit emails or introduce him to people. I ended up getting him an Oprah magazine. I got him on local TV. And so it just always, rather than wait for opportunities, well, sometimes he would ask me for things and I would take it and run with it, but also go out my way to figure out, you know, how can I be valuable? How can I make a connection? How can I offer feedback? And Things like making introductions or offering feedback doesn't have to take a lot of time, but it can make a massive difference. Storytelling is one of the best ways to connect with our audience, but why is that? How exactly do you do that? Nancy Duarte explains how to use the messy middle in speaking and why it can make all the difference from episode 262. Let's check it out. Why is it that stories are so effective and so powerful and one of the best tools and resources that that any speaker can use, whether it's a a data-driven talk or not? A story is emotional. So what happens is there's a rise and fall in story. There's a rise of tension and a fall and it rises and falls and that there's an emotional catharsis in that. There's this sense of, well, am I like that? Oh, I would avoid that roadblock. Like you're comparing yourself to the protagonist in the story, trying to decide if you would make the same moral and physical decisions. So the the protagonist is on a inner journey, which is the journey of their heart that is changing while the story's going on. And they're on an outer journey. They're trying to climb their way to Sauron. Like there's a physical journey and an emotional journey. And the whole time a story's happening, we are going on that journey with that person. And so there is empathy. It's a natural vehicle for empathy. So we say story is the vehicle to empathy. Like it, they're not one in the same. Story's kind of the channel that gets you to this empathetic place. And story, interestingly, if you're a speaker, and you choose to tell a story, or if you're a leader and choose to tell a story, something really special happens in your bond with the audience. So brain science would also show you that when you're telling a story as a speaker, the audience's brains are firing in the exact same order as your brain is firing it while you're telling it. And something happens in the perception of someone when they're willing to take a risk and tell a personal story, especially one from a stage, because the natural structure of a story is that there's a messy middle. In a movie, 10% is the beginning, 80% is the middle, and 10% is the end. So 80% is happening when all the action's going on. There's these roadblocks, and you're cheering for them, and you're having this rise and fall of emotion, and all this excitement's happening. Well, 
if you're going to tell a story, you're going to share your messy middle. And a lot of times that messy middle means you expose that you're flawed and you expose that life is hard. And when you expose that you're flawed and life is hard, the emotional connection of the audience to you is going to be unparalleled than should you not choose to tell a story. So they'll root for you. They'll, they'll perceive you as transparent and they'll perceive you as authentic when you tell a true three act structure and you go straight to the fact that there's a messy middle and that life is hard and that you've overcome something. Quitting your day job and taking the leap to speak full-time takes courage, patience, and passion. In episode 266, Josh Linkner joined me to talk about his own transition and why you have to have balance between being grateful and being hungry. So one of the things that you touched on, the thing that kind of was a mental shift for you was taking it more seriously from going from amateur to professional. How did you have the self-awareness to recognize that I'm okay I'm good enough, but I can certainly, there's more meat on the bone. I can certainly get better. How did you have that self-awareness? Well, I think a lot of it is just taking a hard look in the mirror and being honest with yourself. And then also looking at those that we admire. You know, when I looked at myself and I watched Sir Ken Robinson give his TED talk, I realized yeah. like, there's a big gap there. Sir yeah. Ken Robinson is a 10 and I'm like a two. So how do I at least get to a three? And so I started benchmarking myself against my heroes and, and realized that there's a lot of room for growth. And today yeah. still tons of room for growth. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Is there anything that you're doing that you continue to do? Because there, there is a kind of that balance of like staying motivated, staying hungry, but also not being complacent, not saying content of just like, you know what, where I am right now is really good. Like this is a good spot in my career. I could continue to stay here and do just fine. But what is it that continues to push you or drive you to get better as a speaker and to continue to, to build and evolve as a speaker? There's a wonderful balance in, in business and in life if we can craft, and it's not easy to do, by the way, of being grateful and hungry, mm -hmm. grateful and hungry. And so I'm deeply grateful for the privilege. It really is a privilege to serve and to, to be able to share ideas and make a difference in people's lives. I'm deeply grateful. I'm grateful for where I am in life. I'm grateful for my family and my health and my economic success. And so I don't take that lightly, seriously. I mean, I'm really deeply grateful and I feel satisfied in that context. Yeah. At the same time, I've never been more hungry to grow, to push my own limits, to, to continue to see what I can do in the world, to leave a legacy, to drive impact, to drive economics, I'm not shy to say that. So as happy as I am with where things are, I've never been more driven. And that's the balance that I try to strike in all, all aspects of life is being both grateful and hungry. If you've heard us say it once on the podcast, we've said it a hundred times. As speakers, you have to take your passion and find your ideal customers. Your success really does rely on this. And so from episode 260 of the show, Clay Bear talks about why it's important to find a market for your passion and how to prioritize this lesson in the early days of building your business. So one of the things that we were talking about a little bit ahead of time is the challenge that a lot of speakers run into in terms of figuring out who they speak to, what they speak about. And oftentimes for a lot of speakers who are listening, who are either in the early stages or brand new of just like, I just love speaking. I want to be a speaker. I want to do more speaking, not really sure what to do next. So that's where they, they come to the speaker lab. But one of the challenges is taking, here's what I'm interested in talking about. Here's what I'm passionate about. Here's what I care about and figuring out, is there actually a market for that? Is this actually a thing? Because just because mm -hmm. you're passionate about something, just because you care about it, doesn't necessarily mean that other people care about it enough to pay you for it. Or maybe other people care about it, but there's just not a lot of speaking opportunities specifically around that subject or that niche or for that audience. So what are some thought processes that you have or just some ideas that you have in terms of, I've got this idea, I've got this concept, and now I, I'm trying to just validate it in the marketplace and figuring out, can I actually get paid to talk about this certain subject or topic? 
Yeah, absolutely. That's a great tee up. And the get paid to talk about that is is a really interesting way to look at it because I have this grid, but before we get into the grid, the first thing I help speakers with is, do you want to get a check for the actual talk? Do you want to do your keynote and get a check for doing your keynote or doing doing a talk or doing a breakout or a workshop? Or, and there's a little bit of overlap in this world. You and I know that there's some overlap, but in general, it's helpful to think about it as completely differently. There's other places where you don't get the check for the actual talk, but you get a chance to be on an important, valuable stage with your ideal customers in the audience, and you might sell a program. Now, as you and I know, you know, to get paid five or $10,000 for a speech is doing really, really well, and then you get it to the rarefied air of 15, 20, and, and up and you know, from there, but that's, that's real, legit, professional, professional speakers. Someone else might be a pretty good speaker, but they might have an offering of a $10,000 you know, mastermind. And if they sell five of those to an audience of 500, so a 1% conversion rate, you know, they just made a lot more money than they would make as a keynote fee. So first step is decide if you're the kind of speaker who, now from our ego, of course, often it feels like we want to get a check for our talk, but this leads into the next part, which is what kind of talks people actually pay for. Because- those two worlds are very different. The types of conferences and everything else are very different. I think one place where you and I do is, you know, these associations. These, there's an association for everything. The, you know, I think last time I was on here years ago, we talked about the Decorative Plumbing and Hardware Association. My first paid gig was the guys that sell faucets. The last year I spoke to the American Association of Cost Estimators. I didn't even know what it was. I had to Google it and research, you know, in every company before you build, well, you're going to Disney soon. So one of the other guys there was Justin Newton, who does cost estimating for Disney. So the, before he builds the Death Star ride at Disney, someone has to map it all out in a spreadsheet and say, Hey, is this going to make us money? Right. From the first shovel to the first ticket sold and revenue projections and everything else. So there's an association for that. Typically these associations pay speakers for their actual talk because Nobody brags to their friend about speaking to the American Association of Cost Estimators or the American Association of Parking Lot Pavers or whatever, right? Right. That said, there's conferences like TED.com. Guess what? TED doesn't pay speakers because if you do a great TED Talk, it will change your career, even if you don't get paid for the talk, right? Right. And so what I often tell people is we think about speaking and stages as this whole wide thing. I put a big, intentionally put a big divider down the middle, which says, over here in this elevator, you're getting a check for your actual talk and therefore likely the title of that conference. It's probably not the cool conference where you want to hang out with all, like, all your entrepreneurial friends, right? And over here, you have conferences that you might are really exciting. They look good on a resume, you know, conferences like TED and Mastermind Talks and things like that. And those are brand builders. Those are, if you choose them correctly, you're not going to get a check for your talk, but either what it does, you know, you might sell an offer or have something on stage. Now there's a whole other world where, where, you know, that can be overdone and there's events where it's nothing but a pitch fest and everything else. I think because of that, that world has, has kind of been thrown out. But first is, is do you want to get paid for the talk and, or are you okay not getting paid for the talk and either it's going to build your brand, something like Ted, or you're speaking to your ideal customer and you might make five sales there's a little bit of overlap between those two worlds and there's ways to do text opt-ins and things like that. And we can, we can definitely dig into that if you want to, but in general, it's helpful to think about those as two different worlds. If you want to check for the talk, then it goes to this, this little grid that I have and we can, 
create a, a download for the for the folks. But essentially, there's three entities that pay for speakers: corporations, associations, like we talked about, and educational institutions. And I know you've done a ton of work in the educational market a long time ago. So those three entities pay speakers. Beyond that, I don't see men. There's you know the occasional like exception or outlier, but in general, most people who pay speakers fall into one of those three. So corporations might be IBM or Accenture or Deloitte. Associations, like we said, there's an association and a trade publication for everything. Mm -hmm. And because they're typically not the sexiest conferences, they tend to pay speakers. And then you know, you know, way, way more about the educational world than I do. Then, so that's, think of those across the top of the, the sort of spreadsheet of the grid. And then down the left-hand side is, what's your topic and what topics do those entities pay for? So in the corporation world, let's say in the corporation column, obviously some of the big topics are sales, leadership, marketing, innovation, things like that, right? And if you want the full, full list of this, there's not one, there's tons. But if you go to speakers bureau websites and you sort by category, say what category are buyers buying from? Now they're going to list 30 categories, but it's much easier to get booked for sales, leadership, marketing, that, that kind of thing, culture, innovation. There's sort of an 80-20 there. Um, it's really hard. And, and this is where I struggle a little bit because I, I know people that teach speakers how to be great speakers and they often don't address the, well, before we refine your talk about when you got in a car accident, Julie, who's going to pay for that? What grid, essentially, which box in that grid, corporation, association, education, and then sales, marketing, leadership, which box does your got? Because I have no doubt that there's so many great people that can teach Julie how to make her car accident story into a great speech. It doesn't mean, and, and I think the big you know, untold secret in the industry is nobody pays for the car accident speech unless you know, you really, really wrap a really interesting story around it. But I think there's a lot of people being sort of told and sold that whatever their topic is can be turned into a paid speech. Now, again, if Julie has a mastermind for people recovering from accidents and trauma and all the work around that and everything else, and she says it's whatever dollars per month to join that, that's great. And that could turn into a way to get paid for that speech. But the American Association of Cost Estimators or IBM is not getting paid for Julie's car accident speech. The marketing piece of building a business can be daunting. There are so many different resources and options, but it's important to identify patterns to find your ideal audience. David Meerman Scott joins me in episode 272 to talk about how to turn your clients into fans. Here's more with David. What are you doing to be aware, to look out, to have your radar up, to catch those waves before they arrive? What I do is I read a lot, but outside of what I write and speak about. I very rarely read other marketing books. I, I love Seth Godin. I read everything he writes, but I don't read many other marketing books or marketing blogs or marketing, listen to very many marketing podcasts, a few. I'm much more eclectic in the information I consume because I feel like if I'm going to identify a pattern, it's going to be from some other part of the world other than the, the niche that I'm operating in myself. So I get ideas from lots of different places. So the idea that marketing is not about advertising, it's about content creation. I, I learned that just because I was thinking about content, not thinking about marketing. And the idea of marketing is real time, same idea. I was thinking about 
oh my gosh, this is all instant stuff. This is like a bond trading desk. This is, this is really different. This is really interesting. If I've been talking about this idea of fanocracy, I call it, is really been around, I'm just, a, we just talked about a massive live music geek. And how interesting is it to be a fan of something? And my co-author actually is my daughter, Reiko. She's 26 years old. And when we started researching, she was 21. She's a massive Harry Potter fan, huge Harry Potter fan. Read every book, seen every movie, went to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter theme park multiple times. She even wrote a 90,000 word alternative ending to the Harry Potter series where Draco Malfoy is a spy for the Order of the Phoenix and put that on a fan fiction site. It's been downloaded thousands of times. So she and I are both massive fans. And I was thinking to myself, gosh, is there a way for companies, nonprofits, government agencies, speakers, consultants to grow fans in the same way that Harry Potter has grown fans or the Grateful Dead have grown fans or that Miley Cyrus has grown fans? And that's what we researched for five years. So what I do first is I identify that pattern in the universe that I feel like really is something interesting. And I get some false starts. It's not like everything is, is perfect. And then I'll begin exploring those ideas. I'll tweet a few things out. I might write a blog post or two. I might do a two-minute riff from the stage. I might talk to people just at a cocktail party. Sort of exploring and poking and prodding this pattern in the universe that I see. If I start to get traction, if people say, wow, that's really interesting. Gosh, yeah, what, what do you mean by that? Or if after my speech, you know, 10 people ask me about this, this little riff I threw in that was new, or if I get more traction on that tweet I sent or that blog post I sent gets more comments, I think I have something there. Yeah. And I begin exploring it more and exploring it more and exploring it more. And then I think, do I have a book here? Do I have a speech here? Yeah. And if the answer is yes, then I, I go all in. And, and that's exactly what I've done now a, a couple of times. And, and it's been, that's been what's been transformational for my speaking business is because I'm talking about something new, something really different, something that people go, oh my gosh, this isn't just a marketing speech. This is like something new that I hadn't even thought of. Right. Fanocracy, turning your customers into fans and your fans into customers. So for people who are, especially speakers who are going, okay, how or why do I need to be turning my audience into fans? Or why do I need to be turning the event planners or decision makers into fans? Why does that even matter? So what's interesting about the idea of building fans is that you go from just doing transactions. In other words, oh my gosh, where's my next paid speech coming right, from? Right to building a tribe of people who are eager to know what you're doing next, who are eager to book you multiple times, who are eager to have you be a part of their tribe. And that's what happened to me in the Tony Robbins world, yeah. you know, is Tony has a massive fan base, millions of people who follow Tony Robbins. And just by Tony asking me to be a part of his tribe, it, it has a rub off factor. And, and some of those people then become my fans. So I think looking at us, the, the business of being a speaker from the perspective of, of growing fans means that when you have a new work to get out there, you have a new speech to deliver, you have a new book that you want to push out there, you have a new podcast perhaps you want to launch you've got a built-in audience that can help you along with that and it's way better than always starting from scratch or always wondering where your next paid gig will come from or or worse and gosh 
I, I'm fortunate that for 15 years I've never had to pitch a speech. But worse is when you have to you have to hustle and 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 pitch it and you know sending out cold emails or whatever you have to do to get the gigs. And and I know some people have a tremendous success with that, and that's great. I'm not saying it's wrong, but in my my case, I would much rather have these invitations to speak come to me rather than me having to go out and find them. Yeah. I mean, of course, but to be devil's advocate, some of that is also just the momentum of getting the flywheel going, getting the momentum going, getting the snowball rolling requires uh, some of that, uh, some more effort in the beginning to just get it started. And then the fans start to, it almost starts to become that flywheel where it starts to pick up momentum and word spreads. And Hey, have you seen David speak? David speaking at this such and such event? And, or we, I saw David speak five years ago. We need to have him come come speak at our thing yeah. and speaking leads to more speaking. But when you're yes. not speaking at all, or you're speaking just a couple of times trying to get it going, then it, it takes a little bit more of that kind of inertia and effort to get, get the ball moving. I think there's some truth to that, but let me share one specific idea around how speakers can build fans. And one of the most fascinating aspects of the research for this book was that we interviewed a bunch of neuroscientists. My daughter, Reiko, actually did a neuroscience degree at Columbia as her undergraduate degree, and she's now in her last year of medical school. And so she comes at this whole idea of fandom from a scientific perspective, as well as being a fan of Harry Potter. And we interviewed some neuroscientists about what's actually happening in our brains when we become fans. And here's sort of the bottom line of this book in one sentence is that fandom is about a human connection. So I love going to live music shows. Yes, I love the music, but I love being with my friends. I love being a part of a tribe of people. When I go to a Grateful Dead show, I've been to 75, you know, we know the lingo. You can turn to any other Grateful Dead fan at a Grateful Dead show and immediately have an instant bond because you're, yeah. you're part of the same tribe. That is a really powerful connection that we humans, it's hardwired in our brains. It's part of our DNA. It's a survival technique. Actually, the neuroscientists tell us it's a survival technique that you have close personal relationships with other people and you're part of a tribe. Right. So there's one neuroscientist named Edward T. Hall who identified three levels of proximity, public space further than 20 feet away. Our brains don't track people in public space. We know they're there, but we don't worry about them. Inside of public spaces, social space, 20 feet to four feet, our brains are very aware of who gets into our our social space, because our ancient brain needs to know, is this a friend or a potential danger? Yeah. Is this someone who might hurt us? Do we have to signal our fight or flight mode here? Right. And then inside of four feet is called personal space. Really powerful emotions happen in personal space. That's why when you, with people you know and, and, and care for and love, other Grateful Dead fans or your, your best friends or at a cocktail party, very positive human emotions. Or in a crowded elevator, very neg can be very negative. It's yeah. hardwired. We can't help it. So you feel nervous, even though intellectually you know there's no danger. Your brain signals danger because you don't know the other people in that elevator. Here's what this means for speakers. So many of us, I'm not including myself, but I know a lot of speakers who get paid to go on stage, deliver a talk, and run away, run to the airport. They don't stay. They don't mingle. They, right. They're not a part of the event that they go to. I've always personally prided myself on telling the meeting planners that I will stick around as long as I can. If I have a morning talk, 
I want to be there for the, the morning break. I want to be there for the lunch. If I can still be there for the afternoon break and the cocktail hour and the dinner and I go home the next morning, I'm going to do that. Right. I'm not just going to do my speech, get off the stage and run to the airport. Well, it turns out that that's really, really, really effective for building fans as a speaker because of this incredible, powerful emotion that you're developing among those people who you have a chance to meet, especially when you hang around after your talk. Right. Because when they see you in the speech, you're in their public space, you're 20 feet or further away, you're on that stage, you're untouchable. Then when they see you afterwards at the morning break, at the lunch, at the reception, you have a five minutes to talk with them over a glass of wine at the reception incredibly powerful human emotions happening right then. They already trust you. They know you're the speaker. Yep. They heard you talk. That is a way to build fans. And, you know, it, it's worked for me brilliantly. You know, then the, the number of people then who comment to me later, God, it was so great to meet you. Thank you very much. I loved your talk. Every one of those is someone who can recommend you to, a, to another speech. Every one of those people, right. someone who can buy your next book. One more thing related to this is, I also find it really important after I get off the stage to immediately, as soon as I can, check the social feeds, check Twitter and, and the hashtag, if there's a hashtag at the event, yeah. and immediately begin replying to anybody who's reached out using my Twitter ID or anybody who's used the hashtag and talked about me. I immediately, right. as quickly as I can, respond because those are people who took the time to say something about you and I respond to them really quickly. So those are some of the things that I find around fandom that can work well for speakers. Even if you're a veteran in the industry, you have to stay current and keep identifying the market for what you have to offer. But how exactly do you do that? Scott Stratton is here to talk more about how to stay informed and stay relevant from episode 259. He's going to be sharing his own personal experience and how he continues to pivot in the present. Yeah, that really ties to what I, I wanted to ask you was you are someone who's been in the industry for a long time. You want to be in the industry for another several decades. So how do you continue to maintain relevance? And so some of it is the topic side of it, of making sure that you are providing a topic, you're solving a problem that people actually care about. So just because you care about a topic doesn't mean that the market cares about it. So how have you made sure, you mentioned like I started with social media and then I realized social media was no longer as relevant. Relevant, but no longer as relevant for what I was wanting to do in terms of keynotes. Right. How do you figure that out? How are you aware of that so you stay kind of a, a ahead of the curve? Is, is it the Wayne Gretzky quote of skate to where the puck is going, not where the puck is. So how do you keep an eye on where that puck is moving towards? Yeah, I appreciate the Gretzky reference. That's a hockey reference for you. Yeah, boy, 40 minutes west of here. So go Brantford. One of the things is obviously keeping your ear to the ground, but what does that even mean, right? Where it's, you can set up like Google News Alerts, you can stay up on top of topics, but that does not necessarily show you what the trend is going forward. Mm -hmm. And looking at that, and one of the things you do is you talk to the people, you talk to the bureau, talk, you ask them, you know, what topics are people coming, the inbound topic requests, and when do you have a collection of that? So for me, uh, I knew that social media, more for me, it was like I could just, because I was so entrenched in social media, I could see where the topic was going and where I want it. And I talked to things like Jay Bear about it. We both were the digital social media speaking guys. We both pivoted at the same time and we were texting him and we're like, we have run. 
Like it's just like, it's time to go. And then you kind of just go off to your next thing. And, but the, the difference is, so when you talk a bureau, there'll always be the silos. Okay. Conferences have these silos, right? There's sales and marketing, there's leadership slash management, and there's softer skills. There's culture and, and networking and all that stuff. And then there's motivational, inspirational, and then there's the celebrity side that has no rules whatsoever. And there's yep. nothing I can teach people to do with that. <laughs> and the issue is, so where do I fit in that silo? And it's not only your topic or not, is whether topics become more popular. So anybody who was talking about how to do successful marketing in direct mail and advertising and stuff was not getting keynotes anymore when social media blew up. So it's not necessarily just watching your own topic, but what other topic is taking the spots away. So for me going into, I was looking at what are the overall keynotes? I was, I was moving out of speaking to marketers, mm-hmm. which is a bubble and moving into, and I still love speaking. I just did content marketing world Cleveland and I love it because I get to talk about analytics and ethics and stuff I don't usually talk about in main keynotes. Mm-hmm. So I kept my foot over there with better customized, more drilled down content and I looked at it and it was disruption was causing big issues because that because it was so many changes and still it was still tech based and still this and that was so it wasn't like I was totally tearing it down and like now I speak about Instapots. Like it's just you, like you just can't just totally reinvent yourself every couple of years when and have like totally departed from what because then people are like, that's not an expert, that's just an opportunist. Right. Like right. From place to place. But disruption was all because social media is one of the most disruptive things that have happened when it comes to tech. So that was a perfect segue into it. Do you have to have style to be a speaker? Well, the answer is maybe yes. Sylvie D'Agusto is an expert when it comes to learning the ABCDs of your personal brand. And so from episode 243, she's going to provide the direction and tangible steps that you can take to improve your look and your style. If this is foreign to you as it is to me, you're going to love what Sylvie has to say. Check it out. So you are someone who is very, uh, like you have a very good sense of style and you understand those things. My wife is like that. She's, she's beautiful and does a good job of picking out clothes and making it look like, wow, that looks like it was thrown together, but it was also amazingly beautiful. I don't know how you did that. Whereas for me, and I'm sure a decent number of people, we're clueless whenever it comes to this stuff. So whenever it comes to the topic of figuring out what that personal style or that personal brand should be, I know that's just, that's tough for a lot of speakers uh, and just for a lot of people, myself included. So what would you say to us in terms of how do you go about and figure that out? Like what that should be or shouldn't be for you based on what you speak about, based on who you are, based on, you know, the audience that you speak to, where do we begin with something like that? So whenever you are not good at something, what do you do? Probably talk to people who are smarter than me about Ah, it. And then you outsource it, right? Yeah. Get help. If that is not your superpower, then get help from somebody who has that superpower. And in this case, this could probably be an image consultant or a branding expert. Um, not a big fan of anything like fashion stylists, wardrobe stylists, yeah. because it's not about fashion trends. It's about branding. What message do you send when you walk on stage, when they experience you on the airport, on the airplane, in a restaurant, in a networking meeting, anywhere, 24-7, because you also need to realize you cannot have just a stage look, right? We are on stage 24-7. We are on stage 24-7 in a digital way. Yeah. So you make a good point there of 
there's the on stage, which is a very, very, very small percentage of your, you know, business and your career and your professional life. Uh, and, but there's a lot of interactions off stage. So like you mentioned at the restaurant or you're at the hotel or you're in the, you know, going down to the hotel lobby to get breakfast or whatever it may be, uh, or at the airport, how much should we be considering brand awareness and, and personal branding in those type of like just kind of casual relaxed environments or you know you're going to the grocery store any of those type of, of things so like I guess like what's the what's the line between like the personal of just like I'm literally just want to go to the store in my pajamas and I don't really want to care about it versus like okay I'm quote-unquote on and I need to I, I'm I may be in a situation where I may interact or, or run into someone and I want to make sure that I'm I'm representing my brand well. So is there a line there that we should be thinking through? Or is it just like, hey, we're just always on and that's part of what we signed up for? Or how, how do we best think about that? I would recommend that you somehow think that you are on all the time, that there is not a line because at any given moment, you could meet somebody who is either a potential buyer or an audience member or how often did we run into somebody. Also, your reputation is not what people tell you to your face. It's what they say behind your back, right? Mm. It also involves your neighbors, your family members, your, the people you know in your community. So you are on all the time. Does it mean Gucci 24-7? No, I wish it would mean that, right? I wish it would be the case. <laughs> but uh, no, there are different varieties. Of, you know, there is casual and casual, for example. Most people uh, have think that casual means you don't have to care anymore and that is just plain wrong it just looks very different than formal wear that's all and you you are on stage and you represent your company and your brand 24 7 yeah so big picture just to kind of put a bow on this clothing is certain and attire is certainly part of that but it's just one small part of the bigger equation mm -hmm. of how we need to be making sure that we're representing ourselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It is just one part. And I call it the ABCD. The A stands for your appearance. And then people usually think about clothing. And yes, it's part of it. And it includes, you know, your you know, the fabrics that you choose, the colors, the style, the fit. But first and foremost, it starts with the suit you're born in, your body. Mm. Because that's the first visual um, picture that you create. How much yeah. do you take care of your body? Does it look healthy? Is it in shape? Uh, that's usually what we charge first. And all the details, accessories, jewelry, hair, makeup. So the visual picture that you create, your appearance, your A. But looking good, as I said, is, not, is great, but not enough. At one point, you're going to be for behave. Your attitude is the first thing that speaks uh, to people without even saying a word you you speak with your attitude it might be positive or negative you you, yeah. you make that decision right your body language how do you carry your body around how do you sit how do you stand how do you walk over the stage how do you use your body as an instrument on stage your business etiquette skills your social etiquette skills did you walk out the elevator first or last in the conference hotel elevator where you met audience members or yeah potentially the meeting plan and you didn't even know did you greet them did you shake their hands did you look into their eyes are you on your phone those are all things that people micro moments that they use to judge you and make decisions based on that and then obviously what you say see your communication how you start conversations for example and how you end them and how you use your voice right. we have to be aware that uh, our voice is, is a very important tool. It's like an instrument that we play every single day. And we play it quite loud in front of right. microphones, right? Right, right? And most of us 
never learn how to play that instrument. We just play it. Yeah, true. Every time we walk out, right? So your communication skills. But again, all of that doesn't matter if you don't work on your D, the last one, which is your digital footprint. Because most often nowadays, we make a first impression in a digital way. And that includes your email, your social media, your website, everything that we find online yeah. in in a way that it is touchable and visible. So you really leave that footprint obviously behind, but there are also things in between that lines, that footprint that most people are not aware. How much time do you spend online? How often do you post? Who do you endorse? Who do you not endorse? Who's on your friends list? Why do you only have 300 friends? Why do you have 30,000, but uh, none of them interact with you? So there is a lot of, you know, in between the lines messages that these speakers send where very often people are not aware about. When you're building your business and gathering leads, you might have questions about the timing of follow-ups and how to stay well-connected. Andrew Davis has thoughts on this and more from episode 181. The rule of thumb in his book, is responsiveness always trumps overthinking. All right, let me ask you a couple questions there. So yeah. you, you mentioned that when that lead initially comes in that you wanna call them as soon as possible, which mm -hmm. we've always done as well, especially whenever it comes to someone fills out a form on your site, someone sends you an email and it's some type of inbound lead there right, yeah. at that moment. Is it any different whenever, again, someone hands you a business card? Because at that moment, obviously you can't call them right that second. It's silly for you to even try. They're at a conference or an event. Mm -hmm. Do you wait a couple of days? Are you only calling the hottest leads or even someone who says, hey, I'm on such and such an association in Fargo, North Dakota. We're going to host an <laughs> event sometime. We may be interested. Are you still calling them just based on that conversation? What happens next from there? So for the stage side leads, we actually do call all three types, okay. the types that, you know, from the bottom to the top. And we don't usually wait. Even if the event's a three-day event, we'll call and leave a voicemail and follow up with an email. Okay. And a lot of times we do get a vacation responder because we were just at the event and they're like, we're going to be in Dallas right. for the event until three days. And we, we make a note in the CRM to follow up with them when they're back in the office. And we'll usually do a day after. But we always want them to know that we're responsive. And here's the thing with a lot of those stage side leads. The reason you want to follow up immediately is very often those three types of leads are not the person who will do the clerical task of actually getting in touch with you, signing the contract or getting the contract, telling you about the event, especially if it's the executive level. So a lot of the executives, they will get the email from Ryan within hours of meeting me and they will respond with, man, that was so awesome. I can't believe I just met you. It's so nice to be introduced to Ryan. Here's who you really want to talk to. You know, Deborah, who's the event organizer, she knows that she, I already talked to her and she loved the idea of talking to you. She's the one you should speak with. It's always and, a Deborah. <laughs> with me, it is. It's like the generic name I always pick. The, ask my wife. I'm always like, hey, the, what's our waitress's name? It's Deborah. Uh, she's like, no, it's not. Um, so, yeah, so Debbie, Debbie, well, you know, we found that the it's like responsiveness always trumps like overthinking yes. all of this stuff. Yes. And even if they don't get back to you, it's okay. They're very grateful that you took the time to make the outreach in a proper way and they know that you're available. So you've booked the gig, done the talk, you're ready to get paid. So what does that interaction look like and how can we navigate or avoid the awkwardness? Joey Coleman is here from episode 212 on why you need to know how to serve all three of your audiences. So what is the steps after the talk is over? Because like you said, oftentimes we finish, sign some autographs, take some pictures and collect our check and I'm out. 
but there needs to be a lot. There's a lot more that goes into that to again maintain that relationship for long term. So what goes into the adopt and advocate phases? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, if, if I may, before I get to that, I want to comment on something you just said. You know, we finish and we get everything done, then we collect the check. I try to collect the check before, uh, and yeah, here's yeah, why. Yeah, yeah. I want the last interaction to not be a money transaction, yeah. right? Because everybody gets anxious about that. Uh, you know, I, that's just a human condition, right? We get anxious when money's changing hands. I like to have all that happen before I even get on the plane. So the way my contracts work, everything's paid in full 30 days before the event. Got it. So that we take money, which is often for a lot of people, a tense topic, mm -hmm. and we remove it from the conversation. Sometimes people will say, well, we have to pay you with a check when we get there. And that's fine. But what I find is when they do that, it's always super awkward because it's like, oh, I'm there and I'm excited. And they're like, oh, here's your money, you know, do, do, do. And I'm like, ah, you know, we could have done this before, but okay, that's, <laughs> feels you know. like a drug deal. The, it does, it does. It over an awkward, and then you're walking around with a big check in your pocket yep. and it's just like, what are we doing here? Yeah. I think thinking about the experience of what the interactions are like with you is really important. After the speech, I always try to connect with the organizers right then and there and see if there's anything else they need. Usually they're in the middle of planning the whole event and there's other speakers. And I'll say, look, by the way, I'm still here. If there's anything else you need, don't hesitate to ask. You know, I'm going to be back out in the audience or I'm going to be here until tomorrow morning to to do. And then I kind of get out of their hair. I let them know that I'm there and I get out of their hair. Then we follow up and, you know, follow up is thanking them for the gig. I'll do a follow-up call and ask them, you know, what kind of additional items can I provide to your audience? Um, lots of times I'll do, so, oh, in almost every speech I do, I do an audience survey where there are prizes. So I'll let the organizers know who won the prizes and then I send the prize. And I make these fun prizes, right? My, in my personal opinion, it's not a prize if you give someone something that has your name on it. Okay. So I'm not going to do a prize where I'm going to give away my book. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Or if I am going to give away my book, I'm going to give away, like I did one recently where we gave away a library of great books on customer experience. Mm -hmm. And then I said, oh, by the way, we'll include mine too. Yeah. yeah. Right. And, and so they're getting other stuff and like mine is, is put in with it. You get a Joey um, Coleman poster. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and then what I do is on the, uh, we'll, I'll usually try to do a, a follow-up call after the event. Oh, how did things go? Is there anything more? Getting? And then what I will always ask is, and this goes back to that, you know, another Michael Portism, you know, good actors help other actors get gigs, right? One of the things I will do is say, great. So I know you're still recovering from this year's event. Mm -hmm. When you think about next year's event, what are you thinking in terms of the types of topics you'd like to cover? Because there's nothing I would love to do more than introduce some of my speaker friends who I know will rock the stage and do an amazing job for you to help you with your planning, whether that's today or six months from now or whenever you want to do it let me know what you need. And nine times out of 10, they say, oh, we would love a speaker on XYZ topic, or we'd really love somebody who can address this. Sometimes they say, Joey, we're not really sure yet. And I'll say, well, when do you think you might be sure? Because when you are, send me an email or, and they'll say, well, we have our planning meeting in February. Great. And so then I'll make a note of my calendar in February to reach out and say, hey, have you had your planning meeting yet? Are you looking for anyone? Who can I help you connect with? Yeah. Who can I help you find? Now you're not a speaker. Now you're a resource. Yeah. And I love, there's nothing I love more than getting my friends work. Yeah. There's nothing I love more because well, it's great because I know they're going to do a great job. Well, and not to mention like if, if, if you speak at something and then you refer Susie and Susie goes and speaks and Susie kills it and is amazing, you look really, really good. The exactly. client's going to keep coming back to you saying, 
Who else you got? That Who else amazing. should we get? What else totally. should we do? And and then by the way, that hey, we're not going to have you back for five years. Suddenly that shortens to three years. Yes. Yes. Or two years. You know, hey, great. We had Susie in year two. We want to have you back. Can we it's just like, rotate oh, both of you? Exactly. Yes, you can. Exactly. Yes, you can. And and how about we take that one step further? Because Susie and I are friends. Why don't we plan out the next four or five events with you? Yep. And we'll rotate topics back and forth. And we'll help you build a big strategy for how you're marketing your content to your audience. Yeah. Right. And so now you're part of the team and you're part of the solution instead of just, oh, here's our speaker vendor who we're going to get for one gig, sign up, and then they're going to move on and never remember us. Yeah. It, you know, all of this to, to kind of put a bow on it, it all kind of reminds me of like, like almost going to Disney. Like what's so magical about going to Disney and you, you can't really point to one thing that, Oh, they did this. And that's what, that's what made it all. But it's like a hundred little touch points and a little tiny thing that it may be difficult to quantify looking back on retrospectively. But when you look at the big picture, you're like, Working with Joey was just an amazing experience. It was real. I cannot recommend him. He was great on stage. And then, well, what did what did he do? He just did all the things. He just did all the things. Right. I don't know what to tell you, but all right. of those things culminated together and feeling like that was such a great experience. We have to work with this guy. We have to recommend. We have to refer him to other people. Exactly. And I think that's the the challenge and the opportunity in our business. See, we think it's all about one thing, how you perform on stage. Yeah. Folks, there are plenty of people that are great on stage and are obnoxious to deal with off stage. Yeah. You've heard the stories about musicians and performers that are just, you know, trashing the you know, dressing room and, you know, right. getting in fights backstage and craziness. You want to be the person that they're like, oh, my God, they were so easy to record. You know what I love even more than people saying the audience gave them a standing ovation? I love when the meeting planner says he was the easiest speaker that we've ever yes. worked with. Yes. He was a pro. He was on top of things. He over delivered. He was, you know, accommodating. He was flexible. That's part of the experience you're creating. See, I believe that every speaker actually has a minimum of three audiences. You have the people that are sitting in the room in front of you. Yep. Now that's the audience. Most speakers think about, right? You also have the meeting planner or the event coordinator who's doing all the logistics and planning behind the scenes. And then you have the sponsoring organization or the person who's actually writing the check, you know? And I believe that each of those audiences has different wants and needs and the best speakers in the world address all of those audiences and do their best to show up in special ways for each of those audiences. According to Mitch Joel, the best speakers are like coffee. Hang with us on this one. This final lesson from episode 278 might stump even the biggest coffee drinkers, but trust me, it has nothing to do with the beverage and more to do with how to be memorable and flexible for your clients. This is the perfect end cap to our 40 lessons. Here's more from Mitch. The way that I ground myself is I, I consider speakers like coffee. And I say this all the time, speakers are coffee. You go to an event and they need a bunch of things. They need a stage, an AV team, they need seats, they need food, they need lanyards, they need coffee, they need speakers. And more often than not, speakers are less of the budget than food and co or coffee even for sure. And that's the way I ground myself. I look at the sort of business and what it is. It's easy to go, well, I'm on stage and I'm the star. And I just don't think that way because after all these years, I know that I'm coffee. I'm a line item in a bunch of things that are happening in an event. They want to make sure it's on theme. It's going to be efficient. It's going to work well. And the only variant between me and coffee is there's the human factor. 
Yeah. Is the person going to be a diva? Are they going to be hard to work with? Is there going to be surprises? Are they going to be complaining and tough and this and that? And so within all that, the way that I also help myself, both understanding that I'm coffee and also trying in my brain at least to always think, how can I be the easiest speaker for them to work with? Yeah. What can I do that will just, you know, always make it easy. And that's, you know, things from just always saying yes to, I mean, within reason, obviously, to, you know, just being very distant to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. Now, text them when I land them here. I'm really happy. I'll see you at the AV check. If you need anything else, let me know. And then unless there's anything, I don't want to be like, oh, can you help me with reservations? Do you want me at your, you know, do you want me at your networking event? Uh, post even following up, you know, now, how did your audience think about me? Could I get, I don't do any of that stuff only because I don't want to be a nuisance. I don't want to be like, this is the speaker that just wouldn't shut up. So I I don't want to be that person. And again, maybe it's to my fault. And I'm sure a lot of speakers listening to this will be like, you don't do follow-up. That's what's hurting you from getting recurring gigs. And this, maybe, maybe it is. I I don't know. But at the same time, like, I think everything you just said is incredibly valuable that the reason that the clients may want to work with a Mitch Joel or someone like that is that not necessarily because of just how great you are on stage, but who you are and how you are to work with off stage. Because if you are a great speaker, but you're a pain in the butt, like you said, not even a prima donna, not even a diva, not even asking for your, you know, your jar of red Skittles, but you're just, you're easy to work with. You stay out of their way. Like you mentioned, a speaker is important, but it's also one of hundreds, if not thousands of moving pieces that an event planner or an organizer is trying to juggle. So the more self-sufficient, the more easy you are to work with, the, the more likely they're going to want to be to work with you. I've always kind of like half joking, half seriously said, like, if you're amazing off stage to work with, but if you're mediocre on stage, like you can get away with that for a little while because it's like yeah. you just, you made my life easy and you were good enough on stage that it works and you can build a business that way. And I'm very vocal about that when I have the informational call, which usually does happen because they want to talk about content and themes. I I do tell them, you know, outside of being on stage, my role is to be as low maintenance as possible Mm -hmm. for them. And I use that as a unique selling proposition because I know it's just not the case. I mean, it's, it's innocuous too. You know, it's everything from, hey, where can I get a coffee to, uh, you know, how is your hotel room? It's okay. Everything is always out of my mouth. It's great. I'd never ask anybody on the team a question. If I need something, I'd much rather go to the concierge or someone else or text someone than like I really try to be as, they're busy as possible. They don't need to be catering to my whips. It's just not the role. Well, there you have it. The final 10 lessons from the 40 speaking lessons from 400 episodes series. Hope you enjoyed this rewind from some of our guests. Again, don't forget to head over to thespeakerlab.com slash free book and enter your info to get a free copy of my book, The Successful Speaker. Again, we are giving away 40 copies for this 40 lessons series. So don't wait, go to thespeakerlab.com slash free book. Again, that is thespeakerlab.com slash free book and get started now.